doors to manual adjust your seats because this is the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks i know you are but what am i Hello and welcome to week two of Andy Watch. Yes, the show in We Watch to see how Andy's <laughs> health is is maintaining or degrading. Uh, but thankfully, he's back. I'm Lee Ford. I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get a lot of that today, aren't we? I'm Andy Meekin. <laughs> You're sounding a lot better, my friend. Whether I'm a lot, I am a lot better than I was last week. Uh, I'm particularly on a high today because I've literally popped some coke them all about 45 minutes ago and it's just hit me. <laughs> hey, kids, don't do drugs apart from those that are prescribed. It's uh, as I explained to you, it, it's because I knew I was going to be sat in one position on this. Not, I need to get a comfier chair for this room. Um, a not so comfy chair. I didn't want to get halfway through and start suffering, so I thought I'd pop the coke them on in advance and that'll get me through it. But I always forget how whappy Coke Holdemol makes me get. So uh, this could yes. be an interesting show. Yeah. <laughs> Stick around for the outtakes. I'm sure there's going to be plenty. Uh, but yeah, I am, I am better. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still on the waiting list for surgery. I've had a phone call with the anaesthetics team to go through all the preliminary, you know, are you allergic to anything? Can you lie down like without choking to death, et cetera, et cetera. They don't exactly always phrase important. it like that, but that's basically what they're after. They want to make sure that you're not going to just die on them. So that's all done. Just got to wait until uh, I get a date, which could be any time. It could be soon. It could be later. It's all a step in the right direction, though, isn't it? Yeah. In the meantime, I'm, I'm heading back to work for light duties this week. Oh, and that's good. Because I, uh, I popped around to see you the other day and you were there in your blankie. Just your blankie, <laughs> which was a bit upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> when I crossed my legs, it was better than basic instinct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got an opinion on that. <laughs> But yeah, uh, yeah, you were looking, uh, you're looking a lot healthier this week, Chum. It's good to have you back on fighting form, even if you're not going to go and be a contender at this stage. I have lost a chunk of weight again as well. You know that last year when I was down in Banbury, I managed to lose like a stone and a half. Well, I've lost another stone over the past couple of months. And it's clearly down to my illness. So either go to Banbury or get really ill and you'll lose weight. Yeah, being ill does does let the weight drop off you. I I lost a load of weight on holiday, but I seem to have put it back since I can't leave the house due to, well, just being reined in. It reminds me of school holidays of when I was a kid that you (laughs) know, you'd start the school holidays and instantly chuck it down. You'd not leave the house until you went back to to school or went on holiday. It's serious rain as well. It's, I mean, when I say serious rain, I don't mean it's falling down going, why I'm going to get you. I mean, like it's heavy rain. Yeah, we're playing a big festival next uh, <laughs> next weekend. Good uh, luck. Uh, fingers <laughs> crossed. Apparently, the the weather is going to improve over the next week. So let's just let's just wait and see. Don't want to worry you, but Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is rain, rain, rain. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> and it's not just single drop rain; it's double drops. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Anyway, we've got a show to do. But before we get on with the show, we set our social challenge for last week which was a question about sequels we've got the meg 2 to review in the show today and uh we asked what film did you see or have seen that you think deserved a sequel it didn't get one but you think there should have been a sequel andy how did we do on the socials we did pretty good and there's a lot of repetition there's a lot of people got the same opinions on quite a few things and the ones that i had shortlisted myself so i've struck them off my shortlist 
um, as we go through. So let's start. Shall we start with Mastodon? Let's start with Mastodon. Yes. Uh, so straight away, Quadrophenia was suggested oh, really? by Steve Hampson. It's an interesting one. I mean, I feel that that was quite a nice self-contained one, but it is a bunch of characters that you do wonder how their lives progressed afterwards. The same way that Trainspotting did and then came back and gave us like a 20 years later, this is where they're all at and it, it worked. I think Quadrophenia could maybe be one that you could revisit those characters to see where their youth took them and whether they became different people. Rob Colley, um, who's at Welsh Racer on Mastodon. Father Brown. The one which has now become a BBC drama, but he want, he's talking about the 1954 movie version. Was it the uh, the Alec Guinness one? The Alec Guinness? Because there's been a couple of Father Brown interpretations. Yeah, Alec Guinness, Peter Finch, Bernard Lee, Sid James, Joan Greenwood. I mean, it's a stack a cast. cast for the time. And we've got the TV series in recent years, which is kind of expanding the story further. But yeah, that, 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 it would have been great to have had a sequel to that great film. The Tiny Barrister, uh, Conan the Barbarian, Big Trouble in Little China, and Young Sherlock Holmes. Oh, Young Sherlock Holmes. You know, I've never seen that. Oh, I didn't get to the Duke Dive list, mate, because I've been wanting to revisit that for quite some time. Okay. Big Trouble in Little China. I remember it had that comic book sequel about eight years ago. There was going to be a sequel. It was going to be a TV movie, I think, but there was talk of a sequel. And Conan the Barbarian, I mean, they've been talking about um, King Conan for so many years you know getting arnie back to play the aging conan and it's still not off the cards it still gets rumored and mooted every now and then but it's is there an audience for a conan film in this day and age that's the thing that they're worried about yeah nick frederickson now this is one that sprung to mind for me and he's jumped in and stolen it from me the 2005 film sahara again uh, I've never seen it. Uh, matthew mcconaughey if i remember correctly yes uh, based on the 11th book of the Dark Pit series by Clive Cussler. That's uh, right, There's yeah. 20, 26 books in the series, because I remember when I watched this film and I thought, this could be a great little franchise, and then nothing happened with it. And then I read up on it, it was like, there's 26 books! Why are they not making more of these? They really like the film and its characters, and I agree entirely. It's a great little film. Now, one that comes up a lot. Uh, so, Renzelen threw this in first. The Nice Guys. Yeah, I like, that film. To a sequel. like that film. Gosling doesn't get to do enough comedy. Crow makes an excellent straight man. They've got great chemistry on screen. Let's get more of that. Followed by Laney, who's at a fan of the movies on Mastodon. Nice Guys. One which will make your, you smile. Copper Dome Bodhi. There's an alternative universe where Star Wars is one film fondly remembered by connoisseurs. And Bukuro Banzai is a global empire of movies, <laughs> TV shows, comics and books. Yes, there is. I'd like to visit that uh, alternate universe, please. I thought you might like that one. Over on Twitter, Stevie Dan 1969, Deep Rising, True Lies and The Abyss. Uh, I'm definitely in for Deep Rising. I, I rewatched it recently. I've got, I've got a lot of love for Deep Rising. True Lies, I could kind of see, as long as it didn't end up like the TV series, dragged it out unnecessarily in the wrong direction. However, you could say that Fubar is almost a spiritual successor to True yeah. Lies. No, on I agree Netflix. with you there. It's got the same kind of themes, same ideas, and it plays the same fun aspect. But yeah, I, we, we've been wanting an actual sequel to True Lies for the past, ever since the first film came out, and we never got it. Um, Harvey Morton, another one that I agree with, John Carter. Yeah, I I think we could we could do a John Carter TV series on on Disney yes. Plus. That would work. Definitely. Uh, he's also thrown in World War Z, which there was rumours of more, but nothing ever happened. Yeah, I, I'm up for that one. Another one that was on my shortlist and was probably on your shortlist as well, The Man from Uncle. Yep, yeah, definitely was. I think we were, were sold a duffer with that. 
I think it deserved a sequel, and I would like it to have become the Man from Uncle TV series because it sort of the movie sort of worked as a prequel. Christopher James at Whiteology on Twitter or X, as we're supposed to call it these days, but I refuse. Uh, Master and Commander should have received the sequel tre- treatment. Yeah. The, totally, the stories totally were all there in the books. Yeah, there's loads of books in that series and they're all epic. And watching that film and just taking that one film on its own, it's a great film, but you just you just so want more. You want to see that expanded out. Quite, quite, quite a bizarre one that that never happened. I can't remember whether it was a box office hit. Memory tells me no, but it was very well received. Uh, mm. Critics really liked it. Over on Instagram, Stephen Young. His pick is Dark Crystal. Netflix made that gem of a TV series prequel, but then couldn't continue. And he's glad he got the episodes that they got, though. And you can read more of the story within the comics and the RPG with all the background and the lore. But yeah, I've I've got a fondness for Dark Crystal, and I'd love to see a continuation of stories within that realm. Uh, Over on Facebook, (laughs) bet you can't guess what my mum suggested. Uh, Was it a sequel to Pretty Woman? It was, yes. She'd love to see a continuation of that story with Richard and Juliet reprising their roles, basically picking up to see where they are now. I've, I've got I've got it. So they've got a daughter and their daughter decides to throw it all away, a life in college to become a hooker. Sound, sounds like a plan. <laughs> I like that idea. And she also said, wouldn't it be good to watch Brigadoon in a different centuries? Pity that it couldn't be the same actors, though. Now, if you like Brigadoon and you want to see variations upon that theme, Watch Schmigadoon on Apple yeah, TV+. I was, Plus I was hoping you were going to say that. Because it plays fun with that whole concept. And then the second season goes Schmicargo and goes for that gangster, crime-ridden kind of musical. And I can't wait to see what they do with the third season. And she also said Waterworld, asking the question, does he ever return to the island and marry her? And Waterworld. Oh, we'll, get, we'll deep dive in that at some point. Yeah, we should. I've got, I've got some love for Waterworld. Yeah, same here. It's a Mad Max on water, basically. Yeah. Uh, Dennis, Dennis Hopper was great in it, chewing every bit of scenery that was floating in that bay. Carl uh, Hodkin over on the Spotify responses. Just a couple for me. District 9. Yes, yeah. yes, and yes. Still rumoured. There's still a rumoured sequel to happen, whether it ever will. I don't know. Don't think so now. I think it's sort of past its window of opportunity. And Jumper, which, yeah, that, I mean, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, great film it was fun but it, it ended suggesting the whole franchise and nothing yeah. ever happened and I, I felt like let down that we never got that franchise that's kind of the issue when you make a first film with the intention of it being a franchise and the audience don't find it <laughs> or in the case of the terminator films you make a third film with the intention of it being a franchise <laughs> four times <laughs> over on the facebook page film file Lindsay story would like to see a prequel to lost boys seeing as the sequels were were abhorrent. Uh, something set in the 1900s, you get to find out how Max became the head vampire. And more Good recently, idea. would like to see a, a film like The Black Phone. Want to see more about the grabber, why and where he comes from. Why is he obsessed with that mask? That kind of aspect. Um, Owen Cooper, another one for the nice guys, which he's also asked, can we do a deep dive on it? It was already in the deep dive list, so I've moved it up the list. So I reckon the first week of November... We should be fitting that one in because okay. I've got up until the end of October planned out. Um, Amazing Spider-Man 3? Yeah. Yeah. Either. I'd love to see both Raimi's and uh, Webb's universes for Spider-Man given more to flesh out on. It would have been nice to have seen what um, Sam Raimi's plans would have been if they had come to fruition. We know that it was rumoured that he wanted to do Black Cat and he wanted to do The Vulture. We never got to see it because 
whilst he was t- had his creative control taken away from him on the third one, forced to use a character he never wanted to use, <coughs> Venom. He was then promised creative control on the fourth one, up until he submitted his first story idea, and he went, no, no, we want this, we want this, we want this, and he went, bye, and walked off. There was also, for a very short while, discussions about Andrew Garfield returning, but I don't think it went mm. as far as the discussions for the Sam Raimi movie. Yeah, that kind of fell by the wayside once the deal with Marvel Disney happened. And then he decided to go with the younger hero way with Holland, who's great in his own way. But Garfield was certainly done a disservice with that second film that had some great moments, but was overmarketed and underappreciated as a result. Um, a kick-ass reboot, that is in the pipeline. It's somewhere oh, it? along the process with Netflix. Netflix are planning to do it as a TV series. No one knows yet whether it's going to be a reboot of Kick-Ass being the original Kick-Ass or whether it's going to adapt the rebooted comic with the female Kick-Ass. That would seem a better idea uh, rather than just just reintroduce a, a film that we've seen before and not that long ago. Yeah. And also, Owen would like to mention Dread, which was another one that I had to strike off my list because yeah. it's now being mentioned. I added that as well. And Logan Cooper... Wanted to preface this with just mentioning for me that he's not one of the fans that rallied for Zack Snyder's Justice League to be released, but he did feel that it had really good potential for the roadmap set out for it, but it couldn't be made due to the different plans at DC. So Logan would like to see Zack Snyder given a chance to complete this. Now, whilst creatively, I want to agree with that because if Zack, if it was just Zack Snyder was going to be there and he gets a chance to complete his story, I'm all for that. Whether I like it or not is beside the point. I'm all for the creator doing it. Unfortunately, if he's ever allowed to do it, that toxic element of the fan base, which you're not part of, Logan, you you say you're not part of it who campaigned for it, but that toxic part of it will become unbearable. They're bad enough as it is now, but they will become abhorrently unbearable because they won't be happy. They always say, like, they they keep saying, oh, we just need two more films, the Superman sequel and the wrap-up for the Justice League. And then if they get that, They'll be like, now we, not, now we need the next 10 films that were suggested. They, they won't stop. So uh, whilst I agree with you creatively there, Logan, I feel that the world, the world doesn't deserve it. <laughs> I put on my list a sequel to Logan's Run, but there's been so much talk about uh, a reboot of Logan's Run. Please let it happen one day. Please, within my mm. lifetime, I would like to see not a remake, but something done closer to the book. You, you put four suggestions over on Twitter, three of which have been mentioned by other people, Dread, Master and Commander, and Bukaru Banzai. Uh, you also put forward Serenity. Yeah, I want to see as much as everyone. And I think it's, again, past its window, and it could only work as a uh, as a streaming film. But I'd like to see Serenity, a sequel to Serenity. I, I love Serenity. I was a massive fan of uh, Firefly. I think it's Joss Whedon's yeah. best work. and yes. But with all the sort of toxic reaction to Joss Whedon, the fact that I think the window of opportunity is now closed, I, I, I don't think it'll ever, ever happen. Yeah. My suggestions, aside from the ones that I've already had to strike off because other people jumped on them, I, I still think, why on earth did we end up with multiple Men in Black films, but we only got one Wild Wild West? I want <laughs> more Wild Wild West. I thought that the pairing of a Kevin Klein and... Will Smith was fantastic. I loved the steampunk cowboy aesthetic. That film deserves a rewatch and it deserves to be on the deep dive list. And it's going on there. I don't care what you think. It's happening. Um, Green Lantern. If ever a film teased us with that mid credit sting, that's the one. Uh, the, the, yeah, I've got a lot of love for yeah. that first Green Lantern, but it's what it could have promised with the second film that we wanted more. We wanted Sinestro. 
we wanted the battle against the Sinestro Corps. Oh, uh, Superman Returns. Yes, yeah, if they just just hadn't, if Brian Singer just hadn't adhered too much to Superman the movie and actually delivered a Superman 2 remake as opposed to Superman the movie remake, then I think we would have got it because there was talk about it for an awful long time. But well, yeah, I mean, it, everyone it didn't do the numbers. Super, well, it did okay. It, it was, it was gone through scripting phase. It was only how successful Dark Knight suddenly became that put the stopper on it when DC went, oh, maybe people want Dark. And so they pulled the plug on the Superman Returns sequel. If you've read the script treatments or the storyline ideas, the whole aspect of what we would have got, I think it's a shame that we never got it. Brainiac. Um, yeah. Brainiac was going to end up taking over Superman's child. So Superman is put into the moral quandary of whether he kills his own child to save the Earth or he can find a way to save his child and the Earth as well. It sounded amazing. It sounded... every Because everyone moans that Superman Returns didn't have enough action in it. Yeah, yeah. Because this would have been the one that would have had the super-powered fights. It's a shame we never got it. Um, John Carpenter's The Thing. It's been talked about for many, many years. Uh, because I watched it this week, Mystery Men. I, I'd love to see more stories set in that weird, skewed um, superhero reality. Um, I enjoyed The A-Team movie when that came out with Bradley Cooper etc I thought that they all had great chemistry and I'd love to have seen another uh, another attempt into there and finally the Rocketeer oh bless you the Rocketeer which we do know that there's going to be some kind of TV series project uh, whether it's a reboot sequel don't know but it is coming I've been wanting the Rocketeer ever since I saw that very first film ah uh, yes I've got so much stuff have we done we've not deep dived the Rocketeer have we but we should oh we should added it into the list so We've got a question for you for this week. I'm going to be reviewing the Meg 2 uh, later on in the show. And did you know that the Meg is based on a very popular series of books, the Meg books? That saying, is there a series of books or a book in particular that hasn't been adapted into a film yet that you would like to see? And if you've got any casting suggestions along the way, throw them in. So which book or series of books that still haven't been adapted into a film series. I think on this one we could say a limited TV series as well, but what would you like to see? I'd like to see Billy Summers, which was a Stephen mm. King novel from a couple of years ago, which I absolutely adored. But being Stephen King, it's bound to happen. I'd probably lean into some horror stuff, and I'd like to see some more of the short stories from Clive Barker's Books of Blood adapted. We've okay. had a handful of them adapted in the Books of Blood film and uh, Midnight Meat Train was another one. I'd, I mean, same with Stephen King as well. I'd like to see some of his short stories adapted in a cat's eye kind of approach where you do an anthology. The, the big obvious one is I'd like to see a proper adaptation of Stephen King's Dark Tower. <laughs> it's still a potential from what I've heard. Mike Flanagan's working on it, isn't he, at the moment? Yeah with a still got that proposed film and tv structure bouncing between the two i mean the big one is catcher in the rye i think that's the one that everybody would would love to see adapted and we know uh it, it's never going to happen for science fiction arthur c Clarke's rendezvous with rama yeah i've not read that since i was a kid so i, I you know what i might have to reread that anyway let us know. You can do so across all of our socials, which include Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, Threads, Instagram. Just look for Film File UK. We're on. We're on pretty much everything. I'm enjoying Threads at the moment, but there's not a lot of traction on it. I've noticed a lot of stuff is the same stuff that you'll see on Twitter 
I, I refuse to call it X. Yeah, um, I, I know that with Threads at the moment it's its own separate thing, but they are planning to be able to make it link up with the Mastodon servers. Uh, so you'll be able to cross chat between people on the Mastodon platform as well. I think that's when it will really grow to become something a bit more engaging, a bit more diverse than what you get on Twitter. My problem with Twitter at the moment is purely that I am getting posts from people who I have never engaged with, yeah. never interacted with, and none of my friend, no, none of my followers or followees have engaged with either, simply because they've paid for a blue tick and they pop up in people's feeds. And these posts are garbage, toxic morons. Yeah, because literally, gonna agree with you totally on this. The majority of people who've paid for those blue t blue ticks have paid just to get their loudest voices out there, and they're not engaging positively with anyone they just want their opinion to be taken as gospel they're the worst element of that platform i don't i don't want that i don't i'm not i don't want to have to keep blocking people so that i don't get people into my feed that i've never wanted in my feed in the first place i totally agree get in touch with us looking forward to hearing your suggestions so what do we got on this week's show well as ever we've got a jam-packed show we've got reviews of the aforementioned Meg 2. Andy finally got to see and finish watching Barbie. Anything else, Andy? Yay. And I also watched The Beanie Bubble, which landed on Apple TV Plus last week. We've got a deep dive this week because of the sad passing of Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman. We're going to be talking about Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But before that, we've got this week's box office and we've got the news. <laughs> So box office, Andy, I am pretty sure, and I'll put money on it, that we're still looking at Barbie ruling the world, Oppenheimer doing pretty good, and potentially in third place, can I suggest Mission Impossible? Well, the weekend at the box office saw Barbie in the US retaining that top spot once again, taking another 53 million to add onto its total. Meg 2 The Trench opened in second place in the US, taking 30 million this weekend. Oppenheimer knocked into third place, 29.1 million, with TMNT Mutant Mayhem on fourth place with 28 million and Haunted Mansion on 9.2 million. Mission Impossible has dropped all the way down to seventh place. In the UK, Barbie again retains the top spot for a third weekend, another 7.9 million added to its total. Oppenheimer in second place, 5.4 million. Meg to the Trench in third place, taking 3.7 million. TMNT Mutant Mayhem, 3.6 million. Mission Impossible manages to retain its top five position just about in fifth place with just over a million taken this weekend. Worldwide totals to date, Mission Impossible is up to 495 million. It'll pass the 500 million. It's unlikely to get as far as 600 million by the time it completes its run at cinemas. Oppenheimer has a worldwide box office of 560 million which is a fantastic result for what is effectively a low-budget Christopher Nolan film. Meg to the Trench, thanks to its um, international result, is on 148 million already, and it's looking likely to get into some good profits by the end of its run. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is on 55 million worldwide. It was a reasonably low-budget production, so after its opening weekend being quite strong, it should be looking at turning in some decent figures by the end of its run. But the big success is clearly Barbie with 1.04 billion so far after only 17 days of release. That's a phenomenal result for a film that a lot of people had written off. 
So other than your prediction, Andy, <laughs> and, and you can dine out on that forever. Barbie is just uh, just doing phenomenal business. It's It was very good to see going into a cinema, queues of people, uh, which I've not yeah. seen in a long time, just waiting to see Barbie and people coming again, seeing it a second and a third time. And I'm, I'm betting, and I'm betting a lot of those people on that list, it's been a long time since they've been to the cinema. So it's a good gateway film to get people back in. It's great to see. It's also great to see that this is a milestone of a film because Passing a Billion, it's the first solo female-directed film to pass a billion. Awesome. And for, for it to be someone like Greta Gerwig, who's come from like indie kind of filmmaking, to suddenly make a huge blockbuster that captures the audience's attention in such a smart way. It is... If you, when you get around to watching the film, and I'll talk about it in my review later, you'll see that it is kind of an indie film with a huge budget. Yeah. Because the approach that it takes, it doesn't take your generic blockbuster approach. It just uses the budget cleverly to tell a really solid story. Anyway, it's great to see this kind of success. It's great to see this kind of footfall in cinemas. And it's great to see that other films are not, whilst not doing the same kind of business, they're doing well yeah. around it. If this is the strongest summer that we've had in quite a while. Well, it's that it's that dual programming idea, isn't it? Because once you've seen Barbie and you've got back into the idea of, of, of going to the cinema, you'll go and yep. see something else. Or you'll see the queue for Barbie and go, you know what, let's go and see such and such and come back and see Barbie in a week or in two weeks' time. Yeah, so it, it, it's paying off. It's definitely paying off. Let's spin off from box office. And let's uh, just do a quick update on the strike actions. We're nearly reaching the 100-day mark of the writer's strike. And uh, and that's a formidable because there was a uh, an email that went round from a studio head that basically said, as we're getting into the fall season, basically, if we let the writers starve, they're, they're going to have to come back and make a deal. Yes. Um, well, the WGA and the AMPTP met on Friday for the first time since the strike began in May, with the hopes that they could start negotiations and start to move things forward. However, the reports from that meeting are that neither side has budged from their quite solid grounds. There's been no attempts to find some reasonable ground to work with and no agreeable points on any of the issues being agreed on. The LA Times reports that, according to their sources, very little progress was made. No one's budging over the minimums regarding writers' room staff numbers and guaranteed, guaranteed contract lengths. Both sides have also reportedly argued over streaming viewership transparency and the payment of higher residuals for successful streaming shows. Both parties have agreed to go back to their respective camps to evaluate options. So they've both gone off to go, right. let's see if we can reconsider what where our offers are or what our demands are. The hope was that the meeting today would lead to them agreeing to restart formal contract negotiations but that's not actually happened yet. And Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass has reportedly called for an immediate resolution of the writers' strike and offered to personally engage with all the stakeholders in any way possible to help get this done. Because obviously, Los Angeles is it's the centre of the movie industry. It's the centre of the entertainment industry, the Hollywood aspect. Loss of work at this point in time through production stopping is going to affect the California state and the Los Angeles um, district in a big way financially. There's less income coming in through the area. The local businesses are going to be affected because if there's no productions going on, there's no one flying over and staying in the hotels, yeah. going to the restaurants, cafes, etc. Caterers are out of business, etc. So this is impacting on her mayorship. 
shall we say? It's a good word. I, I think you should use it. And if it's not been used previously. So she's very keen to help get things started again. What impact she can have remains to be seen. Yeah, so we've got no progression. There's nothing at all progressed on the Screen Actors Guild strikes. There's just a lot of people who are campaigning. There has been some controversy from some actors saying that they don't necessarily agree with striking and getting jumped on by random mobs taking their words out of context. Looking at you, Stephen Amell, maybe you should think before you speak because I know what you intended to say, but it didn't come across yeah. like that, mate. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has also said that she doesn't necessarily agree with striking, but she understands the need for it. And that's already getting taken out of context. Because it's a, it's a very fiery situation at the moment. Of course, things are going to get spun out of context because everyone is very, very passionate about what their stance is on this strike. Okay, so we can just wait and see it. There was a, a story that went round about some of the background cast to WandaVision having their faces digitally recreated. And uh, uh, that means that the actors don't get to mm. appear in whatever production is going to come next, but their likenesses will. And that, again, is, is one of the issues that the strike is about. So uh, fingers crossed yeah. that it does get resolved and gets resolved shortly. But let's hope it gets resolved in a way that, that those involved get what they need, not just what they want, but what they need. This is not just an issue yeah. about money. This is an, an issue about people's careers and livelihoods. Anyway, yeah. moving on. So as a result of it, we've been talking about delays that are going to be happening across the industry as less and less product is planned out. Netflix have announced their first batch of delays. Six movies that it had slated for the back end of this year have moved to next year. First one is F. Gary Gray's Lift, the mid-air heist thriller that follows a master thief and ex-boyfriend who team up to steal 100 million in gold bullion being transported on a 777 passenger flight. Uh, this is the one that stars Kevin Hart, Vincent D'Onofrio, um, Sam Worthington and Jean Reno. It was originally slated for the middle of August. It's now going to be January next year. Uh, one which I've been looking forward to, Millie Bobby Brown's Damsel, which is the dutiful damsel who agrees to marry a handsome prince only to be thrown in a cave with a fire-breathing dragon as a sacrifice and relies on her own wits to, and will to survive. It's like a damsel in distress, but in reverse, where she is actually the one who fights the dragon. Also co-stars Angela Bassett. was originally coming out in October. It's now got an unspecified 2024 date. A Family Affair, which is the Joey King starring romantic comedy movie, was originally planned for November this year. It's now going to hit sometime next year. Players, which follows a New York sports writer, Mac, played by Gina Rodriguez, has shifted to sometime next year. And finally, the Shirley Chisholm biopic, Shirley, which stars Regina King, and the Adam Sandler-led Spaceman have also been pushed to 2024. Adam Sandler's Spaceman, that, that seems like it's been in production for like 17 years. <laughs> Remember we first spoke about it way back in the early days of the show? <laughs> so those are Netflix's big changes. And of course, there are going to be uh, changes to box office releases as anything anything cropped up yet, which has now been pushed back or changed. We talked about last week the Marvels being affected by Dune's move. Well, it's not yet, but it very likely it's expected to do a shift because it won't be able to get the IMAX. It's more because Dune has got the IMAX for an exclusive five weeks. And we've already seen the damage that something getting exclusivity in IMAX can do to another film with Mission Impossible taking a huge drop because of it lost, losing so many screens over the past month. Nothing confirmed yet. No other studios have announced anything, but we will. I reckon each week we'll have a different studio's lineup of productions that they've moved to next year. 
there is some good news. Oh, give me some good news. I'm always open to good news. There's some things planned to go into production once the strikes all stop. Scream, the next film in the Scream franchise. The Radio Silence team, Matt Bettinelli, Olpin and Tyler Gillett, who are behind the fifth and sixth films, are stepping away from behind the lens. And they're being replaced by Christopher Landon, who gave us Happy Death Day and Freaky. Okay. And I am well and truly down for that. Because I, I loved what Radio Silence did. Yeah. Because I like what their approach to horror is. But their approach to horror is similar, but different at the same time to Landon's approach, who's done great comedy horror, plays on genres and plays on tropes. And I think this is a prime ground for him to do his style of entry into the Scream franchise. I'd love it if the Scream franchise continues like this and gets different genre filmmakers in the way that the mission impossible franchise started that each film was going to be a different director with their own different approach to it do this with horror directors with a screen franchise and let's get a different style each time bettinelli open and gillett reportedly stepped back to focus on an original horror movie that they're planning for universal which is obviously impacted by the writer's strike uh, the pair and the group's third member chad viola will still executive produce Scream 7. I'm completely out on the Scream franchises. I think I I think I stopped with three. I, I think I need to go back and revisit it. Stopping with three was where I originally had done. And it's only only before um, Scream 6 was coming out that I finally got around to watching number four. See, I didn't even know there was a number four. Which four was actually pretty good. Oh, okay. Well worth checking out. But for me, five and six are the ones that really reinvigorated the franchise, whilst also delivering similar to what the franchise had already done, but it just had a style and tone. Sticking with scary movies, or should we say scary stories to tell in the dark. Oh, yeah. Remember the, uh, was it Guillermo del Toro version? He produced it, yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was young adult targeted horror films based on Alvin Schwartz's popular kids' books. The first film followed a group of friends who discovered a strange book with the ability to bring their greatest fears to life. Well, there's five dozen stories and plenty more monstrous sketches and designs on hand. So there's always been rumours that there was going to be a follow-up to it. And now, in a recent interview with IGN while promoting his last Voyage of the Demeter, which is on our doorsteps, filmmaker Andre Overdell confirmed that Scary Stories follow-up is still in development, but has made some progress. We have a story, we have a script, we've been working on the script as late as last year, even slightly into this year. The process has obviously stopped with the strike, but it is alive for sure. COVID and then Last Voyage of the Demeter ate up two years of my life and certainly put a dent in the progress. Overdahl is returning to direct from the screenplay written by returning scribes Dan Hagman and Kevin Hagman, based on Guillermo del Toro's short story. I'm there for it. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was, it was one of those great family-friendly horror films. The kind of things that you, you want to show your kids to get them into horror. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm all for more scary stories. Uh, you know what else I'm all for? Some time travel shenanigans in an Edge of Tomorrow sequel. It's been mentioned many, many, many times. Is it going to happen or is it still a thing of imagination? Well, development on the sequel began almost straight after the first film hit cinemas. But the progress has been incredibly slow, mostly because of how busy Tom Cruise has been with uh, something called Mission Impossible. Uh, but Emily Blunt who co-starred in the film, has confirmed to ha Happy, Sad, Confused podcast that she's read an actual script for the sequel, but she still doesn't think it's going to happen anytime soon. In her words, I wish there could be one. Have I ever read a script? Yes, we did. There was one that Doug Lyman kind of slithered over to me. I'd love to make it a reality, but I just don't know when or how. And you know, how many Mission Possibles does Tom Cruise need? Come on, come back to the side where you can be a wasn't he brilliant as the cowardly hero? Incredible. I'm so ready. I'm not the impediment. I promise. Now, with Mo recent Dead Reckoning kind of underperforming, 
it's now expected that after the next film, there'll be no more Mission Impossibles with Tom Cruise. So that might free him up. However, we do also know that Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise are planning to go into space and shoot another film. So it might still be some time before we get the Edge of Tomorrow sequel. But it's nice to know that there's a script out there and Emily Blunt, for one, wants back into it. Emily Blunt also wants to get back to a quiet place. So it seems that Blunt... Uh, with her husband, uh, director John Krasinski, and Blunt's co-star Killian Murphy, of course, they were in Oppenheimer together, were discussing that very project. Uh, and the question has been asked that they were sitting on a rooftop, having a drink of wine, and you know what? It would be great if we did another film. Uh, they don't want it to be uh, a, mm. with a different director. They just want it to be almost a family affair. Of course, we do get the spin-off prequel titled A Quiet Place Day One, starring a Lupita Nyong'o, uh, which is currently set for release March 2024. Looking forward to seeing what they do with day one. I like the idea of expanding the world mythology out. There's a lot that you can expand on that world. But yeah, I would like to return back to that core group at some point. Uh, speaking of Quiet Place, Christopher Nolan and his muffled dialogue. Again? It's become almost a running joke that, you know, Bane, you couldn't understand what he was saying. So many of his films, Tenet, etc., the dialogue is buried and lost and you can't, you have to really focus and strain in order to follow things. Well, he's actually finally revealed that there's a very simple reason that the characters in his films get their dialogue buried underneath Zim, Zimmer's scores and loud noises. Which is? He doesn't do ADR. Okay, that well, that kind of makes sense, but there are so many clever audio mixers that ADR isn't always, always necessary, but it does make sense. In his words, I like to use the performance that was given in the moment rather than the actor revoice it later, which is an artistic choice that some people disagree with, and that's their right. The bit that makes it more difficult to do audio mixes on what was recorded on set is the fact that he insists on filming with IMAX cameras, which are notoriously very loud and noisy whilst operating, which impacts on the actual attempts of sound mixing itself often he has to bury some of the background noise from the imax cameras underneath orchestral scores etc there's certain mechanical improvements he says and actually imax is building new cameras right now which are going to be even quieter but the real breakthrough is in software technology that allows you to filter out the camera noise so he is intending at some point for us to be able to understand <laughs> his films <laughs> well, tenet was the big issue wasn't it more though more so than anything else i think uh, yeah. Because it was so so full of exposition that if you missed any of the exposition, the film became quite confusing. With the Bane issue, it became like a running joke. It's like you couldn't understand Bane because it was just like future, 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 future. Then with Interstellar, it was the fact that you couldn't make out most of the dialogue, but the dialogue wasn't necessarily important in Interstellar. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Tenet was the one that burying the dialogue so much made it a chore to get through that film. Yeah. I think one of the things that you and I talked about as soon as we'd seen it. Mm. Anyway, ever since it was first confirmed back in 2019 that Marvel Studios would finally be bringing the Fantastic Four into the MCU, which for those who are comic fans would know it is Marvel's first family. There have been, and we've talked about it many times, guesses of, of who's going to be cast in the film. There's been fan casting. There's been reporting on potential negotiations with actors. And uh, we've mentioned it on the show and always suggested that whenever we mention any names, to take it with a huge pinch of salt. Anyway, saying that, there are reports this week that Vanessa Kirby and Stranger Things' Joseph Quinn are the current top choices to play Johnny Storm and Sue Storm. 
So want to stress that this is still a rumor. No one has signed on the dotted line. What we do know, however, is that Jack Quaid from The Boys had been suggested that he was going to be playing Johnny Storm. And according to a tweet that he sent, yes, I'm still calling them tweets, that nope, I am not playing Johnny Storm, but hey, I'm flattered. The other name that seems to have, uh, have risen up this week uh, we talked about, we'd heard that Adam Driver uh, had been mentioned in the role and had signed on the dotted line, which of course isn't true, that Matt Smith's name has now entered into the bag to play Reed Richards and that Ben Grimm, the thing, has been cast, not just the actor's name, and that the Bears' Ebon Moss Backrack is being seriously considered for a role. But again, this is all speculation until you see the names on an official marvel release but um as you know with marvel you can be cast in the role and mm -hmm. right up to the day of filming you don't reveal anything but we'll we'll keep you informed when we know something having just watched uh i rewatched uh mission impossible fallout yesterday i vanessa kirby would be a fantastic choice yeah i think joseph quinn has a ton of charisma matt smith would be an interesting choice for reed richards as for the thing uh i'm not sure the rumor of ebon moss backrack i think that's a perfect ben grimm his character of Richie on the bear, it's got that kind of Ben Grimmish kind of nature to okay. it, uh, to a degree. I, I, th I think it could be a really good voice presence underneath the CGI makeup. The thing to also take into consideration, yes, take all of these casting rumours with a pinch of salt, but also take the denials with a pinch of salt, because we know that the MCU has a history of having actors say, I'm nothing to do with it. No, I'm not signed up for that. Remember when ben Benedict Cumberbatch wasn't going to be Doctor Strange? <laughs> yeah. How did that work out? They're very sharp with even when they get people to sign on the line until they want to do the full announcement, no one announces it. So if people start saying you're playing them, they shoot it down until it's actually released. So let's just take everything with a pinch of salt at the moment because you never know. We might still end up with Adam Driver as Reed Richards. I think Adam Driver would have been a yeah, great yeah. Reed Richards. But you know what? I'm not averse to him not being it. And like you say, Vanessa Kirby as Susan Storm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And the other rumour is that it's going to be set in the 1960s. So, uh, again, we'll wait and see. These are all just rumours. Uh, George A. Romero passed away in 2017. But we did know that he wrote a treatment for one of his zombie movies, Twilight of the Dead, before he died, uh, alongside Joe Netta, Robert Lucas and Paolo Zelati. They've now turned in a script which Suzanne Romero, George's widow, has teamed up with Roundtable Entertainment to produce and is now targeting a late 2023 shoot date. Yeah, this was first revealed back in 2021. And um, we know that the story in this film is going to be set on a tropical island and deals with the last humans on Earth who are caught between factions of the undead. As usual with Romero's work, there's a socio-political commentary wrapped into the genre trappings. This will be to Romero what AI being done by Spielberg was to Kubrick. Yeah. It's a nice, like, a project that he wanted to get made before he passed away, never got a chance to, that it can get realised on screen. So I'm very, very much looking forward to seeing what they can do with Twilight of the Dead. The estate is talking to a director about filming in Puerto Rico later this year and had talks with cast before the SAG strike. They're now applying for an interim agreement to film given the production's independent nature. Um, Skydance has acquired the film rights to Mickey Spillane and Max Allen Collins' Mike Hammer book series uh -huh. and are planning to develop and produce a film adaptation to start the franchise. I remember there was a great TV series, British co-production, 
with Powers Booth playing Mike Hammer. It was it was uh, it was really really good. Hammer is a no holds barred private investigator and the lead character of a series of hard boiled detective novels uh, that began with I the Jury. In 1947. It's a character that's inspired so many characters throughout the decades, Dirty Harry, Jack Reacher, James Bond, all taken some inspiration from the Mike Hammer attitude. No writers, directors or actors attached at this point in time. The character has been caught up in a long-winded rights dispute over the years which prevented any possible adaptations but now those rights have been sorted out so we should hopefully get to see something fresh entering the franchise stakes. I'm a big sucker for private detective films. I always always have been. A little bit of side news to take with a pinch of salt. Gal Gadot is currently bigging up Heart of Stone and she's spoken about how much she loved playing Wonder Woman. It's a close and dear to her heart. And from what she's heard from James and from Peter is that they're going to develop a Wonder Woman 3 together. Now, this interview was conducted back in June. There's been no mention of Wonder Woman 3 except for, oh, doesn't seem to exist anymore and maybe that whole universe is being scrapped out. The lacklustre response to The Flash is looking more likely that everything of the past will get scrapped. But at that point in time, Gal Gadot was quite convinced that James Gunn and Peter Safran still wants her to be Wonder Woman going forwards. There's nothing mentioned. Take it with a pinch of salt. It might just be the actress themselves not knowing exactly what's going on but saying that she wants to still be a part of it if she can be. What I'd heard is that Patty Jenkins had delivered a script for Wonder Woman 3. Uh, James Gunn didn't like it, but still feels there's a part for Wonder Woman in his universe. But as you say, it's entirely speculative at this point. Well, Gunn has has suggested that he'd like to develop a Wonder Woman animated series. Now, we do know that he has stated that anyone who gets cast for animated voice work will also be the person cast for the live-action version. So... If Gal Gadot ends up being cast as the voice of Wonder Woman, then she will be sticking around. If someone else gets cast, Gal Gadot's out the the picture. Spending just a little bit of extra time in the DC universe, Aquaman 2 director James Wan is recuperating following a health emergency. He shared a post on social media assuring fans that he's on the mend following a health scare that required him to be rushed to the emergency room. Wan posted on his Instagram feed, that he'd had a rough couple of days and nights and had been rushed into ER in the middle of the night at Cedar sinai and that the doctors and the nurses and the technicians are working on him and he's now safe and on the mend. But that's all we know. We don't know what. He did post a picture. He looked very poorly. So if we hear any more, we'll let you know. And finally, Kevin Spacey's criminal trial over multiple counts of sexual assault ended last week with Spacey cleared of all nine charges. And straight away, the sales agent for his UK indie thriller Control is already aiming to get a theatrical US domestic release before the year is out. Yes, Kevin Spacey is through the other side. He has a few projects that he's made over the past couple of years that everything was very quiet on. Because nothing's gone through and he's not been prosecuted, his career can now start up again. Whether we want it or not is another matter, but start to expect to see Kevin Spacey's name appearing on posters near you in the foreseeable future. So that's it for the news. And sadly, we've got two very sad passings this week. One that's hit Andy and I particularly hard. Uh, but first, and, and I didn't know this until we started recording, that a beloved character actor passed away this week. Yes, uh, character actor Mark Margulis, who's famed for performances as the wheelchair-bound and bell-ringing drug runner Hector Salamanca in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, passed away over the past few days, aged 83. His son, Morgan Margulis, 
revealed the news saying that he passed away at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City following a short illness. Everyone knows him for Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And even if you've never known those shows, never seen those shows, you will know of him from it because you'll know the iconic moments in the shows. But for many of us, he's one of those character actors that we've seen throughout the decades in various small roles or larger roles and always gravitated towards any of his performances that he did. For me, my first awareness of him was the back end of the 90s with the HBO show Oz. Yes. Where he played Antonio Napa. He's also in Scarface, which I didn't realize until after I'd watched Oz. And then when I watched Scarface again after then, it was like, oh, I recognize him. He's from that. He's been in plenty of things. Gone Baby Gone, End of Days, Thomas Crown Affair, Californication, American Horror Story, Law and Order, Taylor of Panama, Cotton Club, Arthur, Dressed to Kill, 1492. The list is endless. He's even been... Pretty much everyone at some point has been on Star Trek. He was on an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. A great character actor. Absolutely stood out throughout the ages in pretty much everything that I've watched. Yeah, sad passing. And should have made our list of of those kind of actors that are usually invisible until they turn in that kind of performance, like in Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, that that just become career-defining. But the sad one for us is that age 70, Paul Rubens, better known to the world as Pee Wee Herman, passed away this week uh, after a battle with cancer. And boy, did, did this hit both you and I really, really hard. Yeah. Rubens played the Pee Wee character, which really made the big time for him. It, you know, from a stage production to a HBO special to the movie to a TV series from CBS. It, it was a hugely prominent part of the 80s to early 90s until he took a step back from production, took a break from it, and then he was arrested for the indecent exposure charges in 91, which kind of put him into exile for a few years. But then he ceremoniously just came back in the early part of the 2000s, popping up as Pee Wee Herman at an awards show. And then a few years later, following that with more appearances. He also had a lot of prominent roles in other productions and TV shows and films in the early part of the 2000s. And he built up such a huge following and a huge amount of love and support from everyone he worked with and all the people who got the chance to meet him. Seeing some of the tributes online this week from like actors who'd worked alongside him, uh, production agents who'd worked alongside him, and even fans who had the pleasure of meeting him, and everyone saying that he was genuinely one of the nicest people that they've ever met in their lives. He always had time for people. He was always fun-loving. He was always charming. The guy struck me early on in his career when when I've, i mean we'll talk about it when we talk, talk about it in the deep dive but Wee herman struck a chord with me yeah me too from then that point onwards he popped up in the original buffy the vampire slayer movie which i re-watched this week and that film's not great but he is brilliant as um amelin and his death scene in that film alone is hilarious to watch especially when it stops and then it cuts back on the mid-credit sting and it's still going it's just like <laughs> This is brilliantly overacted. He was the spleen in Mystery Men, which is another film that I revisited this week. That's one of my go-to films. Every couple of years, I go back to that film. It's a great film. He was the voice of Locke of, uh, he was, in yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas. Played uh, played a part in Tim Burton's Batman Returns as the father of the Penguin. He kind of reprised his Buffy role in What We Do in the Shadows when he played Paul Rubens the Vampire as one of the, the Council of Vampires. Um, he voiced Max in Flight of the Navigator. He played the waiter in Blues Brothers, yes, which was one that um, I revisited the Blue Brothers made me go, oh, 
Paul Rubens. He had appearances in TV shows like Pushing Daisies. He appeared in Gotham for a few episodes. He was in Blow. He was in Reno 911. The guy is everywhere. And every time, he was always, always something fun. Even in the most serious of things, you can't help but look at Paul Rubens and go, kind of fun character. What a great presence and what a blessing it has been to have someone like Paul Rubens on planet to give us such great entertainment. Uh, Rubens himself said in a statement released on Monday prior to his death, please accept my apology for not going public with what I've been facing the last six years. I've always felt a huge amount of love and respect from my friends, fans and supporters. I've loved you so much and enjoy making art for you. He's basically been battling cancer for years in secret and he felt so guilty about the fact that he'd not revealed it and then he passed away the following day and this is this this is akin to when uh, freddie mercury passed away because freddie mercury came out to say that he suffering from hiv and then died pretty much straight after david bowie did the same he recorded his final album release it says i'm not in good health and then passes away a few days later a sad loss a real sad loss and hit me really hard i've been watching paul rubens roles in films and tv all week as a result I don't blame you. I discovered Pee Wee's Playhouse when I was living out in the States and it was it was cult television. It it did play on Netflix for a little while. Utterly bizarre, uh, a kind of throwback to sort of the 1950s kind of style TV, but in a world created by Pee Wee. Uh, I remember watching the HBO special. Uh, I then caught Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I have, even in, in the room now we're recording, I have my Pee-wee Herman doll looking down on me uh, <laughs> that I've had for, for donkey's years I brought back from, from L.A. I, I loved Pee-wee Herman. Uh, I adored Paul Rubens, as, just like you, in everything he did. He, he just, even if he was in for one scene, he managed to steal, steal the show. Yeah. I, I absolutely adored Pee-wee and uh, adored Paul, Paul Rubens. And um, it's such, such sad news. I, I was kind of of the belief that Pee Wee Herman, because he'd never aged. Paul Rubens never, ever aged. No. You look at recent photographs of him, and that's why I could keep on playing Pee Wee, that he, he just never looked any older. And I always thought that he'd just always be around, that we'd always have Pee Wee Herman on this planet, in this world, just bringing a, a, a streak of bizarre humor to it and, and, and bizarre glee to the world. So uh, sad passing of, of Paul Rubens. And that, folks, that's the news. <laughs> So if you're enjoying the show and you want to know more about it and you haven't subscribed as yet to the Film File podcast, please do. Your likes and subscriptions helps promote the show until we are in a stage where we can take over this part of the metaverse. All you have to do is head over to your favorite podcast platform, search for the Film File and hit the like button and subscribe. And as we talk, one of my favorite director friends just been in touch to say, I have subscribed to the Film File. So there. <laughs> you are you become part of the family and if you want to know more you can check out all of our socials and that includes facebook twitter instagram mastodon threads just do a search for film file uk will pop up on there you can also get in touch with us directly via email podcast at filmfile.uk any thoughts suggestions we we love taking recommendations for deep dives so if you've got any recommendations of films that you'd like us to explore and delve into fire away we're happy to delve into things not only that we love but maybe things that we don't have a lot of love for as anyone who listened to the sucker punch episode will attest to uh, just get in touch we'd love to hear from you and now it's time for this week's deep dive 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 so as mentioned in the news this week we are having a change of plan 
because we thought it was only fitting. We are going to be talking this week about Tim Burton's cinematic debut and in tribute to the passing of Paul Rubens, let's talk about Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Morning, Pee-wee. Well, Francis. Today is my birthday and my father said I can have anything I want. Good for you and your father. So guess what I want? A new brain. No, your bike. <laughs> What's so funny, Pee-wee? It's not for sale, Francis. My father says everything's negotiable, Pee-wee. I wouldn't sell my bike for all the money in the world. Not for a hundred billion million trillion dollars. Then you're crazy. I know you are, but what am I? You're a nerd. I know you are, but what am I? You're an idiot. I know you are, but what am I? 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 Infinity. No, I'm not. You are. No way. Knock it off. Cut it out. Oh, shut up, Pee-wee. Why don't you make me? Why don't you make me? Because I don't make monkeys. I just train them. Pee-wee's Big Adventure debuted in 1985, directed by Tim Burton in his feature film directing debut. It starred Paul Rubens as Pee-wee Herman, who also wrote the screenplay with Phil Hartman and Michael Varhol. After the success of the Pee-wee Herman show on Broadway, Rubens began writing the script for Pee-wee's Big Adventure when he was hired by Warner Brothers. The studio was impressed with another misfit, a young Tim Burton, who had worked on a couple of short films, which included Vincent and Frankenweenie. And Rubens hired Burton to direct his first feature film. Released in 1985, grossed over $40 million in the US, this became a cult film and is beloved by many. There was a sequel, Big Top Pee-wee. There was also another sequel, Pee-wee's Big Holiday. But it's this film that led to Burton to go on to become the director that he is today by following it with Beetlejuice and was promptly hired by Warner Brothers to direct Batman. So if you don't know who Pee-wee Herman is, this, I guess, is your starting point. Pee-wee Herman lives in a kind of alternative universe in which he's a man-child that's never really grown up, but isn't creepy. He's influenced by a lot of American kids' TV that we didn't get here in the UK. And I think once you get to know who Pee-wee is, that's when you kind of fall in love with him, I guess. Yeah. I had no idea who Pee-wee Herman was before this film because, you know, I'm not in America and Pee-wee's, yeah, even the HBO special, was never a thing in the UK. It appeared once on, on Channel 4. I, I remember recording it back in the day and it, it was a sort of a forerunner of uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse. But most people yeah. in the UK didn't know who Pee-wee Herman is. It was a huge success in, in the US. Uh, but he, he never really travelled to this side of the pond. I mean, before the film, the character had also popped up in two of the Cheech and Chong movies as Pee-wee Herman. When he was asked to make a film, he initially wanted to do Pollyanna as a Pee-wee film, but he then noticed that everyone in the Warner Brothers studio lot had bicycles and got the inspiration to be obsessed with this bicycle that was an awesome bike that got stolen, and he goes on an adventure to try to find it. And it's that simple hook of he just wants to get his bike back that allows it to just become a series of fun sketches held together, allowing him to have fun, some levels of poignancy and some dark horror thrown into the whole mix. It's bizarre. It is. It's scary at times, 
Large Marge is just one of the like scenes that you just don't expect at all. As uh, I mean, it's pure Tim Burton through and through the Large Marge scene. But this was Tim Burton before Tim Burton was Tim Burton. This was the start of Tim Burton, and it it kind of defines everything that Tim Burton has done ever since. All through this film, they were the perfect combination, weren't they? Really, yeah. Two two misfits. Rubens's ideas coupled with Tim Burton's approach absolutely absolutely became utter cinematic perfection and also a third part of that is Danny Elfman who had only done one film score before then was approached by Tim Burton to come along and score this was hesitant to do it because he'd not really done anything huge film wise and look where that led it led to a lifetime partnership between Elfman and Burton that worked so harmoniously together when I saw this when it came out, I, I'm not even sure if it got a cinematic release in the UK, but I know it from home release. Yeah, me too. And it was one of them that I wasn't going to watch it because I saw the VHS on the shelf, looked at it and went, oh, that looks childish. But then one of my mates who'd already rented it went, no, rent it out. Trust me, you'll love it. And I slammed it in when I got home. And it, when it started, I thought, oh God, what is he, has he done this as a practical joke for me because this looks annoying. But within 10 minutes, I was in love with Pee Wee Herman. It's impossible, despite his childish nature, despite his <laughs> annoyance of stupid little voices. You can't That's help but just go, this character is just delightful. He's charming. He's a child in an adult's body. He's got that childlike approach to the world that we all wish we could still get away with. And I think that's one of the charms of Pee Wee as a character. We all wish to a degree that we can get away with being that character ourselves. Yeah, he, he lives on the outside of society. He's, he's, he's a, a, an absolute misfit. And, and, and I've got to quote Michael Wilmington from the LA Times uh, for his review of Pee-wee's uh, Big Adventure. The wrong crowd will find these antics infantile and offensive. The right ones will have a howling good time. And it, it's, a, it's a live action cartoon. It's 1950s keech. It's uh, it's over the top and and back again. It has elements of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and silent movies, and it has elements of bizarro fifties movies all going off within it. And it's light and it's funny, and sometimes it's scary and it's chaotic and it's cheap, and that helps with the the sort of zany weirdness of it. It it's an absolutely spot on film that that makes makes Pee-wee just so darn likeable. It's heartfelt and poignant as well. Um, when he inspires the waitress, Simone, to seek her dreams and go to Paris, escaping her possessive, almost Bluto-like boyfriend, like to, to see that kind of sub-thread get played out, it, it, it's charming. It shows the impact that having that childlike approach on the world could really help. If we all acted like Pee-wee Herman these days, Man, the world would be a great place. Zack Snyder fans wouldn't be obnoxious. <laughs> They'd all realise their mistakes and just live and let live and want to see what happens in the future. Yeah, it, like I say, it's how we all wish that we could get away with acting in the real world. And it's hilarious. When this film is funny, man, it's side-splittingly funny. I was still suffering from, like, if I laugh too much... I get the stabbing pains, but I didn't care because I, I stabbed myself to death watching this film this week in preparation for this. My favourite highlights of it, the Texas scenes are brilliant. I love the, I'm in Texas. I was like, oh yeah, like, the stars at night are big and bright. And everyone's like, dun, 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 deep in the heart of Texas. And that's how he proves this is in Texas. You see, for me, it's the tequila sequence. <laughs> 
the tequila scene in the bar. (laughs) I just, I I remember seeing it the very, very first time in tears. Absolutely (laughs) in tears. It was just, I I couldn't get my breath when I first saw it. I was laughing that much. Uh, The I remember the Alamo line creased me. Absolutely creased me. (laughs) And did you see that the Alamo posted on social media (laughs) that uh, people still come and ask about the basement in the Alamo uh, (laughs) as as a tribute to to the passing of Paul Rubens? I would go as far as to say this is a a fantastic debut for Tim Burton that that laid out the stall for who he is as a director and gave him those freedoms to to create live-action cartoon with its toy box uh, aesthetics uh, and the sort of hyper animated style. And I'll also go as far to say that it is a, it is a comic masterpiece. Absolutely. I love the film within a film at the end when Pee Wee's Big Adventure is adapted to a, a big action James Bond-esque film. And that in itself is one of the most hilarious things that you'll ever watch, especially with the Paul Rubens cameo. Uh, Pee Wee's cameo as like a, a bellboy uh, with an obvious ADR voiced over <laughs> but he keeps spiking the lens and can't help but like try to get himself into shot and it's little subtleties like that that just keep you chuckling right up until the final credits are r- ringing if you've never watched Wee's Big Adventure because you've thought like I did when I first picked up the VHS off the blockbuster video shelf if you've always thought oh, it looks childish seriously give it a shot because this is not it, whilst it is except you know, a childish film. It's a childish film that adults can really enjoy the satire of because it taps into that childish aspect that we all have within us and we all want to embrace and all believe that we could still get away with when if we <laughs> we could still hopefully get away with in public public spaces. Yeah, there's an innocence to it, isn't there? Despite all yeah. the, the zany weirdness that goes into it. it, it's playful and it's innocent and it's... It's a one-of-a-kind movie from a one-of-a-kind performer. Big Top Pee Wee followed in 1988. Randall Kleisner failing to capture the spark that Tim Burton brought to it, despite the best intentions of the screenplay. I don't think the story in it is inherently bad. I just don't think it captures that energy. No, it doesn't. Uh, Which is, interestingly enough, has got uh, Benicio Del Toro in his first appearance. Yeah. Uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse series then spun from that and ran up until 1991. Pee Wee returned in 2011 with a television special. And Pee Wee's Big Holiday that landed on Netflix, whilst again, not as good as Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Isn't that bad? It's worth checking out. But definitely, definitely get peewee's big adventure watched if you want to find peewee's big adventure andy where can we find it um not for free anywhere but you can rent it off pretty much every service it won't surprise me if it lands on a service in the coming weeks there's also i mean well worth checking out is there's a tim burton nine films box set that you can pick up for about 40 pounds on amazon blu-ray this is part of it well worth checking out we'll be back next week with another deep dive and now it's time for our reviews. And remember, Andy's been ill. I've been on holiday. So as of yet, no Oppenheimer review. But we do have, finally, I guess it's part two of your Barbie review. Because (laughs) as we said last week, Andy uh, ended up in hospital halfway through. Literally uh, uh, was in pain due to laughing. So Andy's going to be talking about Barbie. I'm going to be talking about the Meg 2. Let's start with Barbie. It's time for Barbie me? to discover the real world. No, 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 no. Watch me. I've started to get all these weirdo feelings. 
It's anxiety. I have it too. You're gonna start getting sad and wishy and complicated. She's not dead, she's just having an existential crisis. What about Ken? I'm just a dude. Ken isn't something we're worried about. What? When this film was early in planning and the announcement of Greta Gerwig was set to direct with Noah Baumbach on scripting duties, long-term listeners of the show will know that I was immediately on board and marked the film down as one of my most anticipated releases. Strange looks I got at the time as I expressed my excitement over the film were many, with most folks simply bewildered as to how a film based on a toy for young girls was resonating with a middle-aged bloke. But you see, I had faith in Gerwig and Baumbach, delivering something special, something more than just a movie about a doll. The first images from set were met with ridicule by many online and various clickbait websites with a fair number so certain that this was going to be a disaster and would flop at the box office. Then the trailers started releasing and little by little people turned around on their opinions. Now, with the film looking set to be the biggest film of the year, having smashed the box office apart in a matter of two weeks, it appears that the Barbie hype train was right, or was it? Well, with how excited I was to see the film, there was certainly a high chance that I'd end up being disappointed, as the film wouldn't live to expectations. Thankfully, it no not only hit all the notes I was hoping for, but was also an even sharper and beautiful film than I anticipated. The basic plot is deceptively simple. Barbie lives her perfect world in Barbieland, until she starts getting strange thoughts and begins acting differently. Concerned, she eventually ends up travelling to the real world, with Ken in tow, in the hope to find out what is wrong. And there she discovers that the positive role model that she's believed she's been for all her existence hasn't actually made the world a better place for women. Whilst Ken discovers the opposite, finding that men are in charge. This impacts back in Barbie world, leading to a battle of the sexes. Okay, maybe not entirely simple when you break it down, but latched onto that core idea are explorations of life, purpose, depression, anxieties, discrimination, empowerment, idealism, toxic masculinity, toxic feminism, equality, existential crises, and the meaning of beauty all wrapped up in a genuinely hilarious satire that both respects the property it's tackling whilst mocking the fundamental aspects of it. it sounds like a lot to pack into one film, and you may be right, but Gerwig handles all the ideas deftly in a way that never makes any of the points it is making come across as heavy-handed. And it always remembers that the audiences are there to be entertained. And so that aspect should be at the forefront. The cast is huge and all of them have their moments to shine. In the two lead roles of Barbie and Ken, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling are absolutely perfectly cast, both encapsulating the physicality of the dolls brought to life, whilst clearly having fun with the personalities they are inhabiting. Gosling showcases his comic chops again, something that we tend to forget about because of all the more serious drama roles that he tends to get cast in, and it always finds such a joy when it gets a chance to come out. Co-stars around the pair include Will Ferrell as a Mattel CEO, Simu Liu as another Ken, Kate McKinnon as Weird Barbie, the broken result of being played with too much, Issa Rae as President Barbie, John Cena as Merman Ken, alongside Dua Lipa as Mermaid Barbie. I could spend hours listing all the names in various roles here. In the real world, America Ferreira and Ariada Greenblatt play Gloria and Sasha, the mother and daughter combination that are struggling to connect and appear to be the reason Barbie is acting strange, and both are really good on screen. But the standout for me in here is Michael Cera as Alan the short-lived friend of Ken figure that was discontinued. Every moment that Alan, who is clearly having his own existential crisis throughout the film, pops up on screen is a treat. Sarah is absolutely perfectly cast as the awkward friend who doesn't actually know what they are there for 
and why they exist. The film immediately became my film of the year, thanks to the stunning visual design, the sharp witty script, the phenomenal cast, and the smart manner in which it plays with the quite heavy concepts. From the opening act, which was almost non-stop hilarity, poking loving fun at the idea of Barbie world, to the deft inclusion of life messages towards the latter half of the film. There were moments I was laughing out loud, and other moments when I found my eyes had started to leak. One moment in particular, which doesn't really impact on the film itself, but is simply a wonderful touch, was so beautiful in the delivery that it felt like it was the heart of the entire message the film is conveying. Young or old, regardless of gender, this film is for everyone, and it tells a strong, powerful message about life and equality from both sides of the argument. This is top of my recommendations for the year. So my review is for Meg 2, The Trench. We need your help. Three Megs and who knows what else have escaped the trench. I like the plan here. I'm gonna kill them all. One by one. Rock and roll. Come on. Meg to the trench. So entered into this with, with low expectations. And that can go either way when you go and see a film and you're not expecting an awful lot. You can go in and be utterly surprised, charmed, excited, wondering why all the critics were damning a film like this. Or you can come out and thought, yeah, I can see why this is getting bad word of mouth and, uh, and people aren't buying it. Sadly for me, it was the latter <laughs> rather than the former. <laughs> so the Meg 2 returns with Jason Statham as the ridiculously named Jonas Taylor. Uh, what was more intriguing about this film more than anything else, that it was directed by Ben Wheatley. Yes, that Ben Wheatley, the man who gave us Kill List, the man who gave us Free Fire. That's probably where my expectations sort of fell out and hit the ocean floor, shall we say. So what's the story? The natural barrier that separates prehistoric sea beasts from the rest of the ocean is breached down to an illegal mining company at the bottom of the ocean. This releases multiple megs and more into the world. Again, it's a US-Chinese co-production, so you have a predominant amount of the cast are Chinese. For one part of the film, the trench is almost diehard at the bottom of the ocean, and the megs don't really make a substantial appearance until about halfway through when they uh, approach an island known as Fun Island, and basically use it as a buffet. This is a stupid film on every level. It lacks tension. It lacks thrills. I did see it in 3D, which made up for it. Uh, it is ridiculous from start to finish in a way that its producers and the directors know it's a ridiculous film, but can't seem to tie into that sort of self-awareness of it. It's clunky in places. It has some of the worst expositional dialogue I think I've heard. For instance, protecting the ocean is crucial for China and all mankind. The villains are pasted into it, which you recognize from the moment they turn up on screen. The only upside is the opening titles, which you think that is probably Ben Wheatley's sense of humor coming in, which is a Meg versus a T-Rex fight. The movie ends with a jet ski riding Jason Statham, wielding a spear and bringing down more than one Meg. I just sat there and looked at it and just thought, this should be playful. This should be fun. 
but it's a water-drenched movie. It's a waterlogged, uh, waterlogged script. Uh, it doesn't deliver any of that sort of solid fun that one would expect from a monster movie. It takes forever to get started. Starts out as one movie, becomes something else. Just sat there and let it lap over me like a cold wave. Didn't enjoy this in any way. And I should have done. I, I love a good monster movie. This just didn't land for me. Jason Statham just goes through the motions and doesn't even look as though he could be bothered. He's turned up for the for his fee and, uh, and uh, gets to ride a jet ski. Most interestingly is, is Ben Wheatley's addition to it, who brings absolutely nothing to it that you would expect from Ben Wheatley. Any director could have made this who was competent enough to point a camera. There is nothing about his sort of auteurness that lands on it. It's not like bringing Tim Burton into direct Batman, where you see elements of Tim Burton's work. Ben Wheatley is just lost underneath this mess of a movie. Don't expect it to stay for much longer in the top 10. And I think very, very quickly, it will become one of this summer's disaster movies. And a disaster in the sense of this is an absolute disaster. You said about the T-Rex versus the Meg in the prologue. That's actually from the very first book. Okay. It's, it's the prologue chapter of the first book has a Meg taking out a T-Rex that stumbles into the ocean. So it's interesting to know that they've gone back to the first book to bring something that they didn't put into the first film. I really enjoyed the first film. I'm still going to watch this despite the fact that you've clearly not had a good time with it. <laughs> I'd be up for them to just keep churning these out because there's what another about six or seven yeah, I, I, books in the series a friend of mine loved loved the books i mean i think this will do well in china i mean they did a very canny move as we know it's it's uh it's paid for with chinese money and chinese megatar yeah. wu jing as the co-lead is going to bring that audiences so while it might not find its its box office in the us and the uk and i was in a half full theater when it was on I think this will will land pretty well in in China because it's all about it's about spectacle. There's no creative tissue as far as narrative goes that to hold it together. It is about yeah. one big scene to the next big scene to just to to keep you interested. I, the effects worked really good. I'll give it I'll give it that. But generally, I thought this was a, a terrible film. My last review this week is the Beanie Bubble, which landed on Apple TV Plus last week. Do you know what the greatest thing about America is? You can make things happen here like nowhere else. You have the power to create your own future. You can be anything. You can do anything. You want to sell high-end stuffed Himalayan cats? Understuffed, actually, for greater posability. We're professionals. We're giving the people what they need. Did you see the latest numbers? We broke the entire internet thing. You go big or you go home. Ty would tell you he did it all. Which is as crazy as believing stuffed animals are gold. Do you see the truck crash? Based on the 2015 book, The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, Mass Delusion and the Dark Side of Cute by Zach Bissonette, the film stars an almost unrecognisable Zach Galifianakis alongside Elizabeth Banks, Sarah Snooks and Geraldine Viswanathan in a biopic of billionaire Ty Warner and the rise to popularity of Beanie Babies in the 90s and the sudden crash that resulted. It's almost perfect that the film itself, running at 110 minutes, starts off well, seems to be building to something great for the first half, but then drops off into tired cliche and loses any interest by the final act. 
almost replicating the life cycle of Beanie Babies perfectly. The fault isn't with the cast, as all of them are giving it all. Banks and Galifianakis are on fire throughout, burning up the scenes whenever they step into them. Snook delivers a solid performance, as we've come to expect from the Australian actress over the past decade. Viswanthan steps up and challenges the other three with a dominating performance that goes from quiet and reserved to confident and assured, with deafness seldom seen on screen. Suffice to say, all the cast inhabit their characters perfectly. The problems, however, come down to the direction, with the inexperience of husband and wife team Kristen Gore and Damien Kulash impacting on the end result, despite a handful of nice touches, which includes the slow-motion opening titles Crash, which is a beautiful way to start the film off. The screenplay and editing don't help either, as the tale jumps back and forth in time for no actual purpose except to try to pay off a latter scene with some misdirection. The result being that for much of the film, it becomes somewhat confusing as to what period in time we're looking at. The biggest problem, however, is that the film offers nothing that we didn't already know or hadn't already seen. A recent year's documentary titled The Same covers the whole story just as well in almost half the time. Couple that with the recent wave of similar corporate property films such as Air and Tetris, which handle the cliches and tropes of the genre a lot better. What this results in is that Beanie Bubble just feels far too familiar as a result. Immediately skippable. Yeah, I, I, it didn't strike me as something I'd be interested in, in the way that Tetris did. So that's what's in your cinemas right now. What can we expect? this week over at cinemas this week haunted mansion lands in the uk enter the dragon gets its 50th Ooh, anniversary reissue this you know week. i've never seen it on the big screen oh uh, you've got your chance to see it maybe i will and gran turismo drives onto screens i week. i'm more interested in that than i actually thought i would be the approach that they've taken of the rags to riches story which is based on a true story i think was the right approach because it looks well shot the race scenes look amazing but it's got that fundamental drama of someone proving that they can succeed. So I, I, it's on my list to definitely watch. On Netflix this week, Heart of Stone. Rachel Stone is an intelligence operative, the only woman who stands between her powerful global peacekeeping organisation and the loss of its most valuable and dangerous asset. Stars Gal Gadot. Let's see what we get from it, because she's not great. Let's be honest, Gal Gadot's just not great. She's just awesome as Wonder Woman. I've not seen her anything else where... Yeah. I thought she was okay in Death on the Nile. Yeah. But she was just okay. The rest of the cast outshone her completely. Uh, Red, White and Royal Blue lands on Amazon this week. However, on streaming this week, Only Murders in the Building, Season 3 lands on Disney+. Plus. I, I still haven't got around to Season 2 yet. You crazy person. Get I know. It. How wrong am I? <laughs> Uh, yeah, Only Murders is the top of my agenda this week. And that, folks, that takes us up to the end of this week's show. But before we go, and we do this every week, we talk about our neat things. Stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we've watched, seen, read, ate, you name it. As long as we've enjoyed it, we're going to tell you how neat it actually is. Andy, your neat thing for this week is... So my neat thing for this week. Now, I know I just said that Only Murders is top of my list for watching on streaming this week. I kind of lied, because top of my list is the final episode of season two of Strange New Worlds, because this season of Strange New Worlds is my neat thing. I was going to bring this to the table early on, because once we got three episodes in, I'd been so impressed with the different approaches that they'd done on the series. We'd had a courtroom drama, number one facing a court-martial. We had a time-travelling third episode. We had an action drama with like at the neutral zone with Klingons. But each week, 
we got delivered something else. And I was like, okay, I'll hold off until I see how this goes because this could go the wrong way. And we got told that we were going to do a crossover with the animated series Lower Decks. I was like, well, I don't want to bring this show to a neat thing because if this episode ends up being a mess, then I'll regret what I've done. So I watched that episode and I was like, man, this is they've managed to cross over with an animated comedy show in a perfect way. And at the same time, I thought, do I bring it as a neat thing this week? I was like, no, they've got a musical episode coming up in two episodes. I'm going to have to wait and see how, how that plays out because this could be a disaster. And it wasn't. The musical episode, which aired this week, Subspace Rhapsody, did for Star Trek what Once More With Feeling did for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It progressed every character's personal journeys in a marvellously emotive, musical, extravaganza way. And it is perfect genre TV playing with ideas and doing something that shouldn't work, but works so okay. perfectly, including there's some Klingons who break out into BTS style boy band rapping at one point, offering the biggest laugh of the episode. It seems like a daft concept. You, you ask yourself like, oh, surely having everyone breaking out into song in Star Trek has kind of broken it. Has it broken it more than people suddenly acting drunk and doing sword fights? No. Has it broken it more than people devolving down to um, strange little lizard creatures. No, Star Trek has always played with ideas, always played with concepts, always played with some way to change reality around it. This season of Strange New Worlds has not only made an animated crossover work, it's made a musical episode work, and it's proven that Star Trek can do anything. Um, in addition, this season has seen Carol Kane join the crew in a role that I initially struggled with, but quickly grew to love, because Carol Kane always brings something beautiful to the roles that she does if you've not jumped on strange new world season one or two they're on paramount plus well worth checking out strange new world season two in particular is just an absolute joy from start to finish i thoroughly enjoyed season one and i enjoyed the episodic nature of it and i think it's the best star trek spin-off since since next generation Yes, definitely. Uh, my neat thing, I'm going to point you in the direction of a YouTube channel. Now, the legendary or infamous, you might call it, Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie has been talked about and there have been clips online and usually of a very poor VHS copy. For those who are aware or unaware of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four movie, this is a bottom-of-the-barrel superhero movie. One of the first adaptations of Marvel characters. Uh, what happened was that uh, Roger Corman ended up with the rights of the Fantastic Four, had to make a film, or he would lose the rights, and they made um, the now infamous unreleased Fantastic Four. Versions appeared at cons on VHS tape, and all looked pretty, pretty shoddy. Uh, because they were copies of copies of copies. However, if you go to YouTube, there is a company called Anarchy Productions, and they basically restore old films in beautiful HD or even 4K restorations. And the projects they take are generally genre pieces. So they've taken the original Fantastic Four and, and cleaned it up to the point where it is a thing of beauty. Now, don't get me wrong. They've not improved on any of the special effects. Uh, they've not improved of the sort of wonky style of it. This is still an incredibly cheap looking film. But if you've always been intrigued by it, you now have a way that you can watch it. Uh, and what these guys have done is, is, is basically a labor of love. They have remastered 
the Fantastic Four. So it is, a, it is at least watchable. Now, controversially, I still think this is a better Fantastic Four film than the one we got a couple of years ago because it's actually closer to the comics. Yes, it's cheap. Yes, the effects work is appalling. But it, it has the Fantastic Four in it in a way that the last big screen outing just completely missed. So if you want to see interesting restorations, check out their YouTube channel, which is Anarchy Productions. And they've got some really intriguing stuff like episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, mm. some Three Stooges movies. Flash Gordon. Uh, yep, Flash Gordon. And uh, they've got the trailer. So I'm assuming this is going to be their next project for the very dreadful Captain America TV movie that came out in the 70s. But they're doing extraordinary stuff. I'm highly, highly impressed. And that's my neat thing this week. And that's it from us. I think we are about done. Yep. Stick a fork in me. I'm done. Don't stick uh, a fork. Don't actually stick a don't, fork in don't me. Actually, if you see him in the street, ju just don't do that. <laughs> Uh, we'll be back again next week with another show. Hopefully, Andy, you are going to be okay. Fingers crossed. And uh, Fingers crossed. news as it comes uh, starts to come through about your surgery date. And um, hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up again this week. But Andy, you don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me. I'm a loner, a rebel. So long, Andy. waiting list for surgery i've had the phone call with the anesthetist anesthetologists i want to say the anesthetist team anesthetics team there you go i can't leave the house due to the uh i can't leave the i can't leave that i'll start again i can't leave the house okay so we're nearly up to a hundred weeks for the writer's strike it's been years. A <laughs> hundred weeks. That's <laughs> oh, hundred days. That's what I said. Hundred weeks. You said a hundred weeks. Oh. Okay, uh, I've got a story. I can jump in on. I've got a story. <laughs> it is it about bunnies. <laughs> I've got a theory. It could be bunnies. <laughs> bunnies aren't just cute like everybody supposes. Great, so that might be a neat thing one day.